Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Daniel Kunima and Dr. Jacinta Delhaes. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Okay, welcome. Uh, What do we have in store today? So we have a really exciting, very different episode today. Um, It is about astronomy. Uh, at least it starts about astronomy and then it meanders in different directions and then it, it does come back to astronomy in the end. Um, but our podcast is about, uh, it is about astronomy. It's also about astronomers and their lives and what they like to do. Uh, it's also about Africa and the cosmic savannah. And I, I won't say too much about uh, what we're talking about today because I don't want to ruin the surprise, but uh Part of what we're going to talk about is um, multi-wavelength astronomy. So we need to use all of the electromagnetic spectrum, all of the different wavelengths of light um, to do astronomy. And that's because we can uh, see different things at different wavelengths. Yeah. And in particular, in this episode, we'll be talking about HIS, the High Energy Spectroscopic System, which is a gamma ray telescope situated in Namibia. And... uh, Gamma ray telescope is quite an interesting construct because you can't actually detect gamma rays directly from the surface of the Earth. Gamma rays are incredibly high energy particles, which come from high energy events in the universe, stream across uh, the galaxy and uh, intergalactic space and reach us. And what happens when they hit our atmosphere is they interact with other particles within the atmosphere and cause a cascade of highly charged particles uh, and something called Cherenkov light. And what HESS does and other gamma ray telescopes is actually detect that cascade, the kind of collateral damage from this gamma ray hitting the atmosphere and reconstruct the gamma ray path that would have caused this cascade. Yeah, so then you can figure out where the which direction the original gamma ray came from and therefore what astronomical source on the sky probably produced it. Yeah, so you're not observing directly gamma rays, but you're observing their effects, and from that you can infer uh, what energy they were and where they came from. And we also talk about some radio astronomy, uh, something called H1, neutral hydrogen. Uh, it's an emission line from the hydrogen atom, and that's very close to my heart. It's what I did most of my PhD research about. This episode doesn't necessarily focus on it. I promise you we'll have many episodes talking about it in the future, <laughs> if I have anything to say about it. Um, but we will mention it. Uh, I guess different atoms and different molecules, they emit different um, emission lines. So these are narrow frequency photons of light, and uh, they are kind of the signatures of these atoms and molecules. And if we detect them in space, then we can figure out what atoms and molecules are out there, and that can tell us um, where the clouds of molecular gas and atomic gas are, and therefore where the clumps of um, newly forming stars are. Uh, So that can tell us about the, um, I guess, the geography of our Milky Way. Yeah. So uh, who are we speaking to today? 
So today we are speaking to two pretty incredible people, um, Dr. Tanya Edwards and Dr. Simon Beer. Um, they are from uh, South Africa and from Germany, and they have a pretty incredible story about how they travelled from Heidelberg in Germany, where they did their PhDs, uh, to Cape Town, here where we are. And I, I don't want to spoil the story, so uh, let's hear from them. With us today are Dr. Tanya Edwards and Dr. Simon Beer. Welcome, Tanya and Simon. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Tanya and Simon, you uh, have a really interesting story to tell us. And uh, I guess it starts in Germany, in Heidelberg, uh, where you were doing your PhDs in astronomy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you were working on? Sure, yeah. Um, so, I've, well, I grew up in South Africa. Um, and I went to England to do my bachelor's and master's degree there. And then I moved to Germany where I did my PhD in Heidelberg. So there are two Max Planck Institutes in Heidelberg and I did mine at the Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics, uh, with the Hess Group. And that's actually where I met Simon. So the, the Hess Group is actually a collaboration of about 14 countries and many scientists working together on um, high-energy gamma-ray astronomy, or rather very high-energy gamma-ray astronomy. And so we detect um, gamma-ray showers between 100 GeV and 100 TeV. So very, very high-energy, high-frequency uh, exactly. waves. And so the telescope is actually located in Namibia, just southwest of Windhoek, in the Gamsberg area. And it's very good conditions for observing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to go and do two uh, shifts there um, and just enjoy the beautiful sky, enjoy um, observing with the Hess telescope uh, and also working with amazing colleagues in Heidelberg. Uh, so I did a lot of uh, image analysis. So what the Hess telescope does is it detects Cherenkov light. So there's a lot of cosmic rays and high-energy particles and gamma rays that are coming into the atmosphere, and they produce extensive air showers. And these air showers actually produce something called Cherenkov light, which is produced from the molecules in the atmosphere and how charged particles interact with them. And our telescope actually reflects you know, and detects and images this light. And we do a lot of image analysis where we kind of check the shapes of the images. That tells us uh, what type of particle comes into the atmosphere. So my job was kind of uh, figuring out which particles are coming in and trying to find the differences between electron showers and gamma ray showers because they're very similar. Fantastic. And what was it like to observe it with Hess in Namibia? Yeah, it was um, quite spectacular. Uh, I mean, a lot of the time we were also inside you know, um, looking at the showers and checking which sources we're observing. Uh, in Namibia, we would do um, a lot of hands-on work with the cameras as well. Um, and we'd go out and do a lot of checks on the actual telescope. So we had very hands-on experience with the telescope there. So not as automated as some people would assume, because it is still um, a very new area of astronomy and you know the technology is still developing but it's amazing to see the cameras in action and how fast they can record these showers because it's just you know on the nanosecond scale you have to have very sensitive very fast cameras um, and yeah uh, just working with the cameras working with um, which sources we're observing and seeing these showers pop up on the screen you know in in real almost real time was pretty amazing to see 
cosmic rays entering the atmosphere and gamma rays and seeing science in action. Wow, it's all very um, fast timescale stuff, which I guess I'm a radio astronomer and I'm not used to that. Things are just very slow and always there most of the time. Um, what, what does a gamma ray telescope actually look like? So the HES array has um, five telescopes. So four of them are spaced 120 meters apart from each other, and they're 12 meters in diameter. Uh, and then we have an upgrade, so a, a very massive 28-meter fifth telescope that's placed right at the center of the array. Um, and this is very sensitive, um, much more sensitive than the other telescopes. So actually, you can do mono observations with them, which is interesting for a lot of um, science. What's a mono observation? Uh, where you just observe with one telescope. Mm-hmm. Usually in a stereoscopic system, you need more than one telescope to observe because when a shower enters the atmosphere, you can't pinpoint the direction um, without with just having usually one image. So um, you can, if you have two images, then basically you can draw a line through the image and where these lines intersect is where the source of the shower came from. So where the particle entered the atmosphere. And you can also more accurately predict the energy of the shower. So you can look at something called image size or how, um, yeah, how much light is basically collected in the telescope. And then you can average them between all of the telescopes and then see, you know, exactly what energy you're dealing with. So we know, uh, we've discussed on this podcast before that a radio telescope looks something like a satellite dish and there's also lower frequency radio telescopes that kind of look like metal umbrellas or metal spiders and optical telescopes look like, you know, traditionally what we see, housed in big domes, big mirrors. What does the actual telescope Mm. of, of a gamma ray telescope look like? So we actually have segments of hexagonal mirrors that are placed together almost like a puzzle. And it's in a parabolic shape um, still to collect light and focuses that light onto a camera, which has very sensitive PMTs. It's, yeah, 12 meters and 28 meters, so not as big as radio astronomy you would expect, or um, but it's still very impressive when you see it. Yeah, and each segment, it has to be replaced every so often, and the mirrors have to be coated every so often. Uh, but yeah, essentially the, or the same principle, collecting light and focusing it onto a specific area. Really amazing stuff. And Simon, uh, you're from Germany and you also did your PhD in Heidelberg, is that right? Yeah, correct. So I grew up in Germany. Uh, I did my diploma already in Heidelberg, so that was physics. I was also one year in Canada. Uh, and then I did my PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy. So that's the second Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg. I was working in the star formation group of Henrik Beuter, but I'm also a radio astronomer. So we did observations of the H1 line, so the the hydrogen line. And we were using mostly the VLA, the Very Large Array in New Mexico. So we had a large program with them. We had over 200 hours observation time, which then obviously relates or gives us a lot, a lot of data. So and I had the, the joy and pleasure to work through these two terabytes of data uh, but I also had the chance to use other telescopes to observe. So I was at the Effelsberg 100-meter telescope, so they can really do hands-on observations. Where is Effelsberg? Effelsberg is close to Bonn, also in Germany. Uh, so that is, I think, the second largest single-dish radio telescope in the world. And this is very impressive. If you sit in front of this telescope, you play around with your computer, and it actually moves. Um because at the VLA, it's different than the HES telescope, what Tanya, uh, Tanya just said. At the VLA, you never go to observe because you just write your scripts how you want to observe. You send this to the operators and the operators, they do then the job for you. 
Right, so Tanya was saying she had to do a lot of the observations herself, but you're saying that Correct. this is you don't actually have to do it, the operators will do Correct, it for you. Correct, yeah, mm -hmm. because they have a dynamic scheduling. They're always looking for the conditions, and then they, they see which program they do at what time. So you also never really know when you will get your data. Uh, I think it's the same then and with Alma nowadays. And what you were you actually looking at with the VLA and Effelsberg? So we had a program that was called THOR. It was called DH1OH Recombination Line Survey of the Milky Way. That's a wonderful acronym. <laughs> yeah, it took us a while to come up with that. Uh, this, uh, we also had always nice pictures of a, a, Th a THOR guy with a hammer and the hammer was smashed <laughs> on the Milky Way. Um, so we wanted to have a large survey of the Milky Way, all the star forming regions in the Milky Way. Uh, and as then the name already says, not just H1, but also use others, other lines like OH or the recombination lines. And we also had a continuum catalog actually from all the continuum sources in the Milky Way, but also extra galactic sources. Okay. So you're looking at the Milky Way and Correct. you're looking at it H1, which is neutral hydrogen gas. Correct. Yeah. And you're also looking for the, the lines from other molecules, Correct. such as, um, OH, for example. OH, right. And continuum, which is uh, a little bit different. Yes. Uh, so that's also some radio signals. Correct. And, and what kind of objects are, are emitting these things in the Milky Way? Um, so depending on the line is completely different. So H1 is these big star forming clouds. So, uh, you know, hydrogen clouds where stars then can form. OH is more a tracer for the molecular cloud. So you see kind of the second stage after the neutral hydrogen. If it, if it, you know, contracts already, if this, if the clouds form in the center, you usually have molecular hydrogen. This is one step towards star formation. So we can also trace the molecular part. And then the continuum is completely different. There you have uh, a lot of extragalactic sources. These can be either quasars or something like that. Uh, I'm not an expert into the extragalactic part, so I don't want to go into details about that. Okay, so you've got big clouds of neutral hydrogen gas Correct, yeah. in space, and these then condense into molecular hydrogen clouds, Correct. Uh, which then in the centers of those, that's where the baby stars are born, right? Correct, cool. yes. Cool, so you're looking for these 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 early signs of star formation. Yes, correct. And then while you're doing these observations, you can also see some galaxies in the far background. These, yeah. these are actually not yes. in the Milky Way. These are far away, but they yes. just are along your line of sight where yes. you're looking, right? But these uh, far distant uh, sources, they can be very helpful for us because we always see H1 in emission, but we can also see the neutral hydrogen and absorption towards these galactic, uh, extra galactic sources. So we can, so to speak, use the extra galactic sources in the background as lighthouses shining through our H1 clouds. And we can then observe an, an absorption signal, which gives us extra information about optical depth and, and how much hydrogen there is actually. So it helps us a lot, the combination between the extra galactic and the galactic. Right, so you've got these big, huge uh, radio galaxies uh, in the background, which we've spoken about on this on this podcast before. Yes. What these radio galaxies are, and as you say, they're like a lighthouse, which are like illuminating these gas, these these clouds of gas, Correct. which are then absorbing that light, Correct. and then we can see the dip in the light because it's been absorbed, Correct, and yeah. we can then figure out how much gas is there. Yes, really awesome stuff. Yeah. <laughs> But we'll move on a little bit from your, these stories now because we've got something else to talk about today. We're recording this interview here in, in Cape Town in South Africa and you've got a really interesting story from how you got from Heidelberg in Germany after your PhDs to here in Cape Town. Correct. Uh, so can you tell us how did you get here? So after our studies we, we thought, okay, I'm from Germany, Tanya's from South Africa, so we should combine our two homes. 
And we not just wanted to sit in a plane, we wanted to experience it a little bit more. We wanted to have a big adventure, so we decided, okay, let's use our bicycles. So we started cycling in May 2017. We cycled down from Germany all the way to Turkey. Then we took a plane to Cairo, and then our Africa adventure started. And from Cairo, we followed the east side. So we went uh, through multiple countries. Um, and we, yeah, so we went through Egypt, Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia, um, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, South Africa. It's a lot to remember. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we did about 19,000 kilometers on the bike now. Um, and the idea was, yeah, to connect Simon's hometown and to my country. Um, yeah, and it's been an amazing adventure until now. It's taken us, yeah, almost two years. That is absolutely phenomenal. So you rode your bicycles from Germany down to, to Cape Town over right. the span of about two years. Almost two years, yeah. I mean, I don't even know where to start with questions on that. It's, it's so different. Um, well, I guess firstly, what inspired you to do this? Uh, well, I think it was sort of a joint, um, idea in the beginning. So we, I always wanted to travel. I knew I wanted to travel and I was thinking more along the lines of six months. Um, and then the idea just grew. Simon wanted to explore closer to home, which makes sense because, you know, you should take opportunities to see countries that are close to you. And I was really keen to see Africa. Uh, and then we thought, well, how can we make this uh, cheaper? First of all, how can we make it more adventurous? And then we came up with bicycle touring yeah, I think it also grew over the time because at the beginning we always thought, okay, let's just buy a bus, do the classic van life in Europe, you know, maybe tour around with a with a van. But then we decided, no, the bike is actually, or the bicycle is a better uh, transport mode because you're very close to nature, first of all. You're very close to the people. You feel everything. You smell everything. You have the wind in your face. You also are not a threat to people. If you come with a bicycle in a small village or so, people are always curious with you. They speak to you. If you come in a bit in a big car, you usually just go through these little villages. You know, we have to stop. We have to find water. We have to buy food. We interact with the locals. And, and this gave us a, a very, I think, unique insight into Africa. Yeah, your senses are almost always alive. You know, people are, there's a million things happening at the same time and you have to concentrate on that, but it gives you a lot. It's very hard work. And it takes time to get used to it, especially your body. Uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes you have really a lot of pain in, in your body. But then after about one or two months, it just says, okay, this is my life now. I better get used to it. And yeah, it's it's been fine and fantastic since then. And were you happy with your decision to do this? How did you enjoy your adventure? I think we were very happy about it. Um, you always have ups and downs. I think that's in every every life. Um, so also in two years, you have some down points where you feel like, oh, so, but m most of the time we were very happy about it and, and we we're very, um, confident that this was the right decision. Sometimes when you cycle a hundred kilometers a day, you're really tired, your legs are sore, but then you camp somewhere in the middle of the bush, you have a beautiful sunset and, and, and you just feel like you're, you're totally free. You can move wherever you want. You can stay wherever you want. Uh, if you're lucky, you might even see an elephant then in the distance walking by or so. These are then just moments where you know, okay, all the pain, all the suffering is totally worth it. 
Yeah, because uh, Namibia was quite difficult for us and because uh, of a lot of the roads um, were very, very hard. And when we got to Cape Town, you know, we thought, okay, we'll give ourselves a break. We're, we're off the bike, you know, that's going to be fine. And then we took the car to to uh, Simonstown and we're just like, oh, we wish we were on the bikes again because it just it's just a totally different feeling around you. And I think we really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the world, people. Um, how I interact with people and, and yeah, my perspective on a lot of things has changed because of this trip and I'm very grateful for that. So I'm sure you've got so many stories, um, top 10, top 100 stories. <laughs> um, can you think of one or two that you might like to share with us? Well, uh, I think one of the most exhilarating moments was when we were wild camping uh, in Kenya and an elephant crossed like just five meters from our tent on on an elephant highway and we heard this amazing rumble this brrr this deep rumble that they used to communicate with and, and that was in the middle of the night at three in the morning oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it wasn't something i'd heard before and and yeah you just have to trust that you know elephants are intelligent enough they don't need to kill you for just any reason sometimes things happen but you know, um, yeah, we just had to trust it. We couldn't do anything about it. And yeah, we realized that, that, yeah, it just crossed. And then in the morning when we were having breakfast, it also was probably the same elephant that was sleeping in a bush in front of us the whole time we had breakfast and we're packing up our stuff. And then it notified us politely, Hey, don't come closer. I'm in this bush. And then we just turned around and then, and then we left the area. Uh, another highlight for us was, I think the people in Africa. In, in Europe and in the Western world, people usually think of Africa as the kind of the, the poor and dangerous continent where you should not go. And, but it's, it's absolutely not the case. People were super friendly to us. One of the highlights was Sudan. A lot of people think of Sudan as the war zone and you should not go there. But people invited us all the time for coffee, for, for even having lunch, or we also could stay at their places. Uh, one example was we, we had a rest day in Dongola. It's a small town. We just went out for breakfast. We didn't want to do anything on the date and just, you know, relaxing in our hotel room. But then in, in this cafe, there was a guy who started chatting to us in French. My French is not very good, but we could at least exchange a few words. And then he invited us to his village, which was a little bit outside of Dongola. He said, come with me. I show you my family. I show you my place and blah, blah, blah. So we said, okay, fine. We have nothing to do today. So we went with him. He was super nice. We got to know his family, his place. And it turned out that he was a big fan of drones. So he actually had a drone from France. And we ended up in the evening for the sunset on the Nile in a little boat, followed by the drone. Uh, and we have amazing pictures and videos of that. So it's just wow. like totally unexpected. Yeah, not the sort of thing you might expect. No, no, especially not in Sudan. This is something you would not expect, yeah. Another thing we didn't expect was uh, to come across a wild rhino in Namibia. Oh, my. So we were both just eating a breakfast, our second breakfast on the road, and I look up. And then there's a rhino walking towards us, um, which didn't know we were there, clearly. And so eventually we, we ran behind a bush. And of course, Simon went back to the bike to grab his camera just to make sure he can shoot it properly. And Tanya and was then, not happy about that. <laughs> I was so not you, happy. So you ran back to the bikes, but the thing you grabbed was the camera. Well, the bikes were just two meters in front <laughs> okay. of us. And, and, I, and I ran back and Tanya thought, I, I get some 
either the Swiss army knife to protect us or so, but I, yeah, I just took the camera. I'm not sure a Swiss army knife would work against a random exactly. guy. <laughs> but the in intention would have been nice, yeah. No, but we, um, yeah, we ended up going behind a bush and then a larger tree and then, yeah, it had a standoff with us, made sure it looked very scary, which it did look very scary. And then uh, after it grunted and turned to the side, it just decided to run off instead of charge. So in general, the wildlife has been incredible to see, but I think we've also had some very close and lucky close experiences, calls. including, you know, cycling past lions as well, which we wow. didn't <laughs> And it would have been actually quite hilarious if a rhino would have attacked us because we actually called our, our trip Rock, Road and Rhino. So rock for rock climbing because we did a lot of rock climbing in, in Europe. Road for the cycling part and the rhino. We also tried to raise awareness and funds for the rhinos. And if a rhino would then attack and maybe even kill us, that would have been not good. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask you about your road rock and rhino name. Um, so, so tell us more about the rhino part. So the rhino, we were lucky that we could, um, well, maybe let's start that the rhinos have a big problem in Africa and, and all over the world. They get, um, they're close to extinction. Uh, there are several reasons for that. One is habitat loss, but another big point is also poaching. Unfortunately, people think that the rhino horn can cure any diseases or so, but it's basically horn. So it's like the same than, than chewing your fingernails. That's, it has exactly the same effect. But people don't want that. So the rhino horn is extremely valuable. It's more valuable than gold. So you have to imagine you have this massive animal walking around with something like two kilograms of gold on its nose. And that obviously attracts also a lot of people. And they kill the, the rhino, they chop off the horn, and then they, they, they leave. It's also a big problem here in South Africa. So we wanted to raise funds and awareness for a, a UK charity. This is called Save the Rhino. Um, they help all kind of different projects and we could also visit some of their projects in Africa, uh, especially two projects in Kenya. One was called Borana, it's a, a private conservancy and old Jogi. And we could see what they do with the, the rhinos there. And it was just fantastic to, to see their work. There was also one, one rhino baby was, was called Meme. I think Tanya wants to talk about that. Yeah, because I got to give this baby rhino a mud bath and it was absolutely adorable. Um, and, but to see the work that they do there at Old Jogi, especially with Mei Mei, um, in her case, she was born blind and she would have lost her life if she had to stay in the wild with her mother. So they took her in and then they treated her eye and now she can see properly and they're teaching her how to feed, how to bath, do all of these things. Her carers are basically her mother there and uh, at four years old hopefully she'll be reintroduced more and more often back into the wild and we're going to put on our website some links to the to this charity and if people would like to go and contribute to that they can go ahead and do that Perfect. thank you and uh, also another part of your um of your trip was about rock uh that's in your title um tell us about that yeah, so we're both passionate about rock climbing, so sport climbing, bouldering, track climbing, whatever you want to call it. Um, and in Europe, we also had our climbing gear with us. So that means a rope, all the carabiners, harness, helmets. So it was an extra 15 kilograms of weight that we had to carry around, but it was totally worth it because we cycled from one climbing area to another, uh, sometimes stopped there for a week or two and just enjoyed uh, doing a lot of rock climbing there. And it was really fantastic, yeah. Yeah, if you want to know the best spots that we found along the way, you can check out our website and all of that is listed there. What's your website? 
www.rock-road-rhino.com. Great. I guess we're getting a little bit off the topic of astronomy, <laughs> but yeah. uh, you know, our podcast is also about astronomers, and astronomers are people who have a lot of different interests and you know do a lot of different things with their lives. So I think this is also something really important to talk about. But our podcast is also about. It's called the Cosmic Savannah, and and you were both literally seeing the cosmos from the savannah. As professional astronomers, it must have been incredible to see these night skies. Please tell us what you saw. So yeah, we had um, I think two highlights about the star, uh, the stars, and and the sky. The first was the the Sahara Desert in Sudan. There is just no one around you. You have like three, four hundred kilometers of nothing than just sand. So the sky is extremely dark. We were fortunate at that point. It was also new moon, so we had no moon in in the way. And then you can just see. It feels like billions of stars. It, it was fantastic. You see the Milky Way all the way to the horizon. And we even saw the zodiacal light, which um, is something I've never seen before. What is the zodiacal light? So the zodiacal light, it looks like, uh, it looks almost like the Milky Way. It's like milky-ish. Uh, it's like a triangle, which it goes to, um, which you see towards the sunset. And it is actually a reflection of dust in our solar system. So we have not just the planets and uh, the comets and, and, and all the other bodies in our solar system, but also a lot of dust. And this dust reflects the sunlight and you can see it clearly uh, after sunset or before sunrise. And uh, it's it's very dark, so it's a bit darker than the Milky Way. But if it's dark around you, you can really see it. It was almost brighter than the Milky Way at that mm. point. Really? It must be quite rare and quite difficult to see something like that. It is very difficult because usually you can also, if, if you have a city or a few cities around you, you always see kind of the light of the cities towards the horizon. So you really have to have a dark horizon around you to see the zodiacal light. Yeah, so I guess light pollution is something that we talk about sometimes Correct. and meaning, you know, light from cities and uh, that it, that means that we can't actually see the, the night sky and very few people who live in cities have ever seen what the night sky really looks like. Correct, yeah. Yeah, But that was then the northern part, and we also could see the southern part. So um, in Namibia, I would say, was the, the next best sky that we, we saw. Uh, I think there were too many, too many villages along the way in the rest of the countries, unfortunately, that we couldn't see such a, an amazing sky. But Namibia is a lot of desert, and yeah, very few villages. And the sky was incredible, actually so incredible that... Um, Sometimes it was hard to distinguish the Milky Way from the rest of the sky because there was just so much of light around, oh, uh, so, wow. many, so much of stars around. Uh, it was also very hard to pinpoint uh, constellations because there were just so many... Too many stars that you could see. Too many stars, yeah. We did uh, see the LMC, the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Small Magellanic Cloud, which are dwarf satellite galaxies. And it was um, especially amazing when we could go camping there. Uh, and I always make the jokes, then why do you want to stay in a five-star hotel, you know, if you have five billion stars above you? <laughs> so that was our five billion star hotel. Wow. And Simon, had you seen the southern sky before? So for me, it was the second time that I saw the southern sky. I was once in Chile where I could see it a little bit, but not as good. So for me, it was just like seeing the LMC kind of, you know, you always hear about the LMC and the SMC and then seeing our neighboring galaxies kind of that large and that bright. Yeah, that, that, that was just fantastic. Yeah, as a person that grows up in the northern sky, uh, you're used to the, to the northern sky 
uh, also the, the constellations there. But then the southern constellations, I got totally lost. I don't know any of them. Uh, but it was very nice to see also another part of our universe. Yeah, that must have been incredible. Yeah. Uh, Tanya, you've been through Namibia twice now for two completely different reasons. How, how was the, how was the comparison in riding through Namibia and seeing the night sky versus going there for some professional astronomy? I probably saw more of the night sky cycling through Namibia. Um, professionally, when you're there, you're obviously working at night. You're doing a lot of long shifts. Um, so you have to kind of, you can't be outside, um, always, you know, just observing or, or, uh, admiring the night sky. Although we did have a lot of nice asteroid showers, um, which we could see. And, uh, we did have a telescope, uh, that we could also observe, observe it. But yeah, most of the time you, you have to do a little bit of work. Of course, that's why you're there, but we could just camp in the middle of nowhere in the desert. We didn't have to be close to any facilities or any big roads. We took very small roads through Namibia. So I would say probably cycling. We saw much more. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a, um, bit of a common misconception that professional astronomers are sort of outside looking at the night skies. Uh, but that's kind of not what we do. In fact, we do that very, very rarely. And I don't even know the names of the constellations, to be honest. Um, but we, you know, it's looking at the same thing, but from a different perspective, right? As a radio astronomer, you can also be lucky and always observe during the day. So in my career, I haven't had a single night observation. Uh, I was always lucky and got the day shift, so I could oh, always wow. observe during the day and sleep at the night, yeah. That's good. I had Christmas night once. Oh. <laughs> Simon, being from Germany, what was what, what did it feel like for you to discover Africa like this? So in Germany, you don't hear too many good news about Africa. So if Africa is in the news, you always hear about either war or another drought or people are hungry and that kind of stuff. So I was a bit skeptical. Uh, obviously, Tanya told me a lot about that. Africa is not like that. Um, at the beginning, it was it was difficult, I would say. Um, so that's why we also decided to start our cycling trip in Germany. So we could get used to all the, the hobo life, the cycling. Our bodies could adjust to the, to the biking and also living just outside in a tent basically all the time. And then we were prepared for Africa. What I really enjoy about Africa is, uh, first of all, people are much more open. The life happens more on the street, I would say. In Europe, especially in Germany, everyone is in their houses or so. And if you go to certain parts of Africa, Kenya, Uganda or so, you always see hundreds of people running around or walking around on the street, which is super lively. Also, the markets. I love going shopping at the markets there where you just have uh, very nice ladies that sell you all their freshly grown products. Um, so I, I really enjoy this. And what was also surprising for me was like, even though some of the people live in very poor conditions, at least what, what we would say poor, um, is they have, but they have their family around them. They have their friends around them. Um, and I think this is a very important part for their life. And they're usually very happy about their life. Um, so I'm not sure if it's also a good idea as a, as a European or a Western person going there and trying to put your lifestyle on them. I, I think the lifestyle they're having, most of them are actually quite happy about it. We could sort of um, get a little bit of a feeling about a change in lifestyle. Obviously, from our lifestyle, there was a big change uh, from giving up a lot of comfortable things back in Europe and then, you know, just having a tent, living in a tent, always sitting on something hard. But it, I mean, if it becomes usual, if it becomes your normal life, then this is, this is comfort for you after a while. 
And Tanya, how was it for you to discover more of the continent where you're from and how is it to be back in South Africa now? Well, I'm very glad I chose um, and we both chose Africa to go through. I think I had a huge perception shift, actually, because growing up in South Africa, you do grow up with this culture of fear because crime is a big problem here and it's um, a, a big focus for a lot of South Africans. But I think um, going going through the rest of the African countries, it couldn't be more different in terms of safety. Uh there was no, there was no point where I felt unsafe actually in Africa. Um, also including coming down to Cape Town. So there are, yeah, there is this, maybe for me, I had, um, a bigger fear that something might happen because of my childhood or growing up here, but that was completely false. I realized. And you're happy to be home. Yeah, I am. I'm very happy to be home. So we're really going to enjoy some weeks in Durban and enjoy that with family and friends. And we've really enjoyed our time in Cape Town. That's just been incredible. I think Cape Town is probably the most beautiful city in the world. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be <laughs> too biased because I come from Durban, but it is actually a pretty spectacular city as well. I can confirm that. <laughs> I'm really impressed by Cape Town. Um, we've been through a lot of big cities, or we, we usually try to avoid the cities because they're not so good for cycling. But Cape Town was just like, that was like, wow, seeing Table Mountain, seeing the ocean next to you, perfect place. This episode is sponsored by Cape Town Tourism. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> Tanya's family is also quite happy that we are back now uh, because I think they were, they usually see kind of their local crime rates, I would call it in Durban. They were super afraid of that we go through Africa. Um, so were also my parents, um, actually. Uh, and I think they're all happy that we are done with the trip, that we survived the trip, uh, and that we're back home soon. But I think there's there's not too much need to worry about that, yeah. That's true. There's a lot of things that uh, we've taken from the trip, but definitely um, not to judge people too quickly and to always give someone a second chance. I think these are these are two big things for me. Um, and also to always be open to, to any person from any cultural background or any you know, class background. Um, you, you can always learn something from them and you can always make their day a bit brighter. So just try and be open to people. And as astronomers, we're quite aware that, you know, this is the only planet that we have. There, there are none, no others anywhere near us that we found that we can live on or we haven't found a, another inhabitable planet yet at all. So we really have to take care of this one. Uh, did you learn any messages about the environment and environmental care on your trip? Yeah, I think environmental problems, um, yeah, well, they're all over the place here on this planet. In Africa in general, we saw a big difference between countries that um, have a lot of garbage, for example. We saw lots of garbage in, in, for example, Egypt. They don't have any disposal system or anything. But then we also saw places like Rwanda where they just banned plastic bags or plastic in general. Um, and, and the country is, is super clean. There is no environmental problems about plastic and that. And so I think a lot of countries could, you know, take this as a role model and also use that. Kenya introduced it now a little bit. Um, yes, I think we have to be very careful with our environment, with nature. We also have to give a lot of space to wild animals, in my opinion. Um, Population growth is one of the biggest problems here in Africa, especially for the wildlife that just uses up a lot of space. Uh, we have to come up with alternatives for cooking. Charcoal is one of the biggest problems in Malawi, Zambia. They just chop down all the forests to cook. So we have to come up with better ideas for that. Um, this is work in progress, but um, I think these are very, very important topics. 
Yeah, I think the environment was actually one of the biggest shocks for us. Um, and actually not just going through certain countries in Africa, also it already started back in Europe. Uh, Croatia, for instance, was a very big shock. Uh, there was plastic dump, you know, plastic everywhere in bushes ready, uh, which you don't see going past in a car. We actually did one stretch in a car and my parents were like commenting, this is, this is very clean. You know, Croatia is very clean. And we did the same stretch with a bicycle the next day and you see the details. You see all the different plastic stuck everywhere. And there's also a lot of different dumps in certain areas. Montenegro, this continued. Albania, it continued. Greece and Turkey, um, not as much plastic, but a very big problem with stray cats and dogs. Uh, there's one million stray dogs in Greece right wow. now. And um, the situation is also getting a little bit out of control. Uh, Africa didn't have so many stray animals. Um, and I think in general, a little bit less garbage, but in certain parts, whenever we would go through the Sahara Desert and we wouldn't see anything, it would just be absolutely clean, beautiful. And then we'd see one cafe on the side of the road just for people to stop or trucks to stop. And around this cafe, just tons of plastic bottles and, uh, and plastic bags that have either caught on bushes or flown off into the desert. And this was just one tiny cafe and we would see this repeating often or one small village there's just plastic has been introduced into societies which don't know how to handle them and there are no disposable systems no recycling systems and there needs to be more of an effort a combined international effort um, into handling plastic especially in poorer communities and and we also think that it's not just recycling that that should be improved but also everyone should consider their own use of plastic and and garbage in general so i think the besides recycling the best is actually to avoid it that means um maybe you can refill your bottles at home maybe you know introduce a filter at home so you don't have to buy water you can just use uh, the same bottle over and over we actually have plastic bottles from home that are still that still survived for two years and they're still okay you sometimes have to clean them but that's not a big deal also try to avoid maybe you know take away coffee or if you want to have a takeaway coffee bring your own mug you know you can everyone can can do it themselves and i think if if everyone would do that that would also be a big step towards the right direction the next thing is we obviously also want to promote cycling as a mean of transport it's not just a fitness thing it's also Uh, if you could have a city which is full of bike lanes where everyone can just cycle, this would be for us a, a dream city, you know, where you don't really need a car. Here in Cape Town, I can understand that the traffic is very dangerous. It's it's very hectic. It's difficult to commute, but um, I think everyone should also try to to promote that a bit more. Well, it sounds like you've gone from experiences where you're, you know, doing your PhD, staring at the skies all the time, having your heads in the in the cosmos, so to speak, to a very, very grounding, humble experience. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much, Jacinta. So pretty epic stuff. Uh, Dan, you didn't get to be there for the interview. So what did you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, it, it was really great to obviously hear about the astronomy that these guys do and their experience in terms of their studies and uh, visiting telescopes and things. But the cycling through Africa, it definitely um, triggers a lot of wanderlust in me. <laughs> um, You're quite an athlete yourself, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 
uh, oof, it's absolutely something I would I would love to do. It sounds like an incredible adventure. They had an incredible time and saw some in, like unbelievable sights. Seeing the zodiacal light, oh, uh, I know. just and just I mean all of the interactions with animals, mm. being you know under African skies and in the as you mentioned the the cosmic savanna that we <laughs> sort of like named our podcast after it's it it's really quite special um and i think yeah very very lucky and yeah um, i thought it was i thought it was incredible i i was blown away by the zodiacal light story um i don't even know what it would look like they said it was like a yeah even like the milky way, yeah like. even brighter than the milky way at yeah. one stage which is just amazing and yeah, I haven't myself had a much of a chance to travel far outside of Cape Town yet. Mm. So I haven't seen much of the rest of South Africa, let alone all of Africa. And their story just inspired me so much to go out there and see it because wow, what, what amazing things and people and animals out there. Yeah. And not an insignificant uh, athletic achievement either. <laughs> 19,000 kilometers, and they didn't talk much about that, but, um. I guess, uh, I'm not much of an athlete myself, but you have, you can talk more about this, Dan, because you have not one, but two silver medals in, in <laughs> comrades. What is it? An ultra marathon or a? Yeah, it's, it's an ultra marathon, about 90 Ks. So that's um, pretty good. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, you know about pushing your body, right? <laughs> running. Um, but doing it day after day like that for, uh, Two years is is it's really quite something, and um, they seem to take it in their stride and, and manage to enjoy the the journey. It's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, pretty awesome. Well, I guess that's it for today. Um, so thank you very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Cosmic Savannah. Thank you, and as always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com. And we'll have links related to today's episode. Special thanks today to Dr. Tanya Edwards and Dr. Simon Beer for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Allnut for the music production, Jana Sprink for the astrophotography, and Lana Sarai for the graphic design used to create the podcast art. This episode was created with the support of the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can help us by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leaving us a review. We'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah. Next time on The Cosmic Savannah. The question then, because, you know, how do we get from the formation of the Earth all the way back to the Big Bang, right? How do we put that entire story together? And that's basically what I'd like to do. Right. This is what we try to do using big supercomputers because it's very hard to, you know, think and just write down all the things that might happen. So instead, we try to put it on a computer and let the computer do the thinking for us.